from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We are going through a, a, an Abraham series. I think sometimes we can spend so much of our time in the New Testament or, or among you know, the Psalms or Proverbs, whatever a favorite book might be, and we lose the whole grand narrative of the Bible. So we wanted to start with, with Abraham and go through the long arc of what God did through Israel. So in case you weren't with us last week, I invite you to go check out our, our podcast that uh, Nat and some of the sound guys have been working on. Um, last week, um, we, it was, it was a, a great endeavor by Tyler to go through two whole chapters of, of Genesis, and he did a great job with it. So Abraham was following and obeying God, but seems to have lost his way. This is a bit of a recap uh, from last week. He has been given all these promises from God, but then he flees the land that he is given by God. He goes to Egypt. And then he, he has to go through this process where he comes back and starts to reconvene and kind of rekindle this relationship with Yahweh. Then his nephew Lot is abducted, and as I always think of it, you guys have heard me reference this before, Abraham goes all Liam Neeson and taken on the people who take Lot, and uh, he goes and, and gets him back. And he, he rescues Lot back from this whole skirmish that happened. And when he does this, he also ends up really helping out the kingdom of Sodom. It's before Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed. And the king of Sodom is extremely grateful, and he tries to give Abram, I keep calling him Abraham. In my notes, I keep writing Abraham, but he's still Abram. So if you ever hear me say Abraham, just just disregard it. So the king of Sodom tries to give him a bunch of bounty or loot for, for what he's done. But Abram refuses it so that the king of Sodom can't say, that he is the one who made Abram great. So that when God's promises become true and Abram becomes this great nation and wealthy and he's starting to be a blessing to the world around him, that the king of Sodom can't say, see, that's all all my doing because I gave him all of this stuff. So this chapter today, Genesis 15, opens then just after he's turned down this whole material blessing from the king of Sodom. So chapter 14 kind of ends with this implication that Abraham might have been in a harder spot right now than he intended. He'd been given all these great promises by God, uh, but then a famine happened, and he had to run away to Egypt, and then now he's back, and then now he's just fought in these battles and probably lost some people, possessions, resources along the way. And then he's also just turned down this bounty from the king of Sodom. And there's this, this kind of sense hanging over the text, like, how is he supposed to be great, like God said he would, if he's not benefiting from all these various things. And then uh, that's where we pick up with the text in Genesis 15. Today, you've heard me say this before, uh, sometimes I go with a a little bit more of a thought-for-thought translation of the Bible. It just means maybe a little bit less rigorous uh, of a translation word-for-word, because when the cultural distance becomes so great, it can sometimes be more helpful, actually, to read a thought-for-thought translation, because it fills in a little bit of the context and just the strangeness. So I'm going to be reading from the NLT today, in case you're following along. So uh, in Genesis 15:1, it picks up with his backstory and starts here. It says, The Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. So God is consoling him after this, in a sense, loss of what could have been with all this stuff. He's saying your reward is not in the loot of the world. 
And how often do we need to hear this, right? So Abram doesn't have the entirety of the Bible behind him, kind of reminding him that this is true. He's living in a world where possessions are everything and where any famine might mean the end of your entire line. And so it, it's easy in the modern world to be like, hey, possessions don't matter that much because we're safe from a lot of nature's whims. But in the ancient world, they weren't. So possessions meant a lot to them. But this is something we need to hear as well, that power, position, money, fame, influence, these are not what God has, has put us here for. Your reward is not in those things. So Abraham is confused, or, or Abram is confused. He's like, fine, you're going to give me something better than these, but what good is it all if I don't have an heir, if I don't have a son in my line? He says in verse 2, it says, But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And he's actually, I, f I found this interesting. When I read it uh, a few days ago, I realized that he's almost quoting verbatim from a book that would be written later, so he's not quoting, but he's pulling uh, an idea right out of Ecclesiastes 2. Let me read this to you. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So here Abram's like, what good is all this you know, bounty? What good are all these promises you're going to give me if I have no heir? Because as hard as I work for all of it, it's, end up, it's all going to end up going to somebody who's not even in my family, and it's all, be, it's all going to be, in the words of Ecclesiastes, enjoyed by someone who didn't even work for it. So what's the deal with that? What's, you know, what good is all your blessing when I don't have an heir? I just imagine in today's language, like, just this, like, this punk kid from Damascus is going to get all my stuff. Like, what's the, <laughs> where's the blessing there? So uh, not long before this, God had made a promise to Abram, saying that he would make him a great nation. And Abram remembers the promise, but here you can tell he's starting to doubt it. You know, how could he become a great nation? How could he be a blessing to all the families on earth if he had no offspring? And then God answers him. He says, no, your servant will not be your heir. I always imagine this Eliezer of Damascus, like listening through the door, like, oh, dang. Like, <laughs> it's like he just lost his whole, you know, what he thought was going to be his inheritance. Lord says, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars, if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Now, this didn't really make sense. Abram was older, and so was his wife, Sarai. And when God told this to Sarai later, she laughed at him, not because she lacked faith, but because she knew how the world worked. Sometimes we don't give the ancients enough credit, but she knew exactly how biology worked. She was post-menopausal. She could no longer have children, and she knew that that was true. That was the facts, and uh, the ancients knew that. But the promises of God don't always make sense. Sometimes God promises an oasis in the desert. Sometimes he promises joy out of grief. Sometimes... He promises fertility, even in infertility. 
And God promised a great nation, a multitude of people that would come from Abraham directly. And he said that every nation, every people would be blessed by an offspring or the offspring of Abraham. And again, here he had no offspring. Now we know looking back, we're just kind of waiting for the story to develop, right? So we know looking back that God ends up delivering on this. This is fascinating. For a long time, skeptics claimed, this is before we had like DNA evidence, for a long time, skeptics claimed that Abraham was just made up. They're like, no, Abraham never existed, and Moses, and David, and all this is just like a, this is just like an origin story for a bunch of Semitic people who wanted to band together to at least have a prayer, at least a chance against Egypt and Assyria and the Phoenicians and all these stronger empires around. They needed to band together, and in order to band together, they needed some sort of shared myth. This is what skeptics said for quite a long time. And they had a lot of egg on their face when DNA sequencing became a real thing, and you can talk to one of our guys here named Josiah about how exactly this works, because I don't understand it. Uh, but apparently when, when DNA research became much more, I don't know, much more robust, they realized that it was this crazy number. I, I wish I had the exact stat, but it was something like 60 to 80% of people who claim Jewish ancestry all had a common ancestor 4,000 years ago in the Levant. So like, of almost all the people who claim to be of Jewish ancestry, they actually do share, and you can tell somehow looking at the chromosomes or whatever, you can tell when people all share a certain kind of ancestor, a certain common ancestor. And not only that, but tons of Arab Muslims also go back to the very same line, the very same person 4,000 years ago in the Levant. And that's not uh, Abraham's grandson Jacob, but that would be Ishmael, but we haven't gotten to that story yet. But fully half of the world claims Abraham is their grandfather in the faith, and much of the world is descended from him biologically. But we don't know that yet. Abram is still a childless guy who's like, what, you know, what's the deal? Uh, interesting little fact here. You guys, you know, you get used to my linguistic tidbits. You put up with me sometimes. So later, Abram's name will be changed, and this is why I keep getting confused. So his name is Avram, or it's a shortening of Aviram, which means in Hebrew, it means my father is exalted. So like the Av, when, you know, when Jesus is on the cross later, he cries Abba, and that just means, that just means father. So Avram is like the father is exalted. So that's Avram is my father is exalted, or, or my father is exalted, whereas Avraham is father of multitude. So when his name is changed later, it sounds so similar to us, but the meaning is completely different. Instead of my father is exalted, he becomes the father of multitudes. But of course, Abram doesn't know any of this yet. The Bible says that uh, at this point, even though he didn't know any of this was going to happen, for sure, it says that even though that was the case, that he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Another translation, a little bit more literal, could say that he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That it is the belief. It counted his belief to him as righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? This phrase is pretty obscure, but it occurs a few times in Leviticus, Numbers, and it has to do with the actual ritual act of sacrificing the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it meant that when a person offered a sacrifice and that sacrifice was accepted, that's when this language comes in, that it was credited to them as righteousness. So what's going on here? There are many times that Abram demonstrated his faith, many times that he was tested, all sorts of things that he had to go through, but only once is this language used of him that he is credited as righteous, that he is found righteous or holy before God. 
And it's not because of his you know, moving from Ur of the Chaldeans, it's not because of rescuing Lot, and it's not because of the various trials that he's been through, but it's because he believed in the promises of God. God told him that with his, his postmenopausal wife, he would have heirs, biological heirs as numerous as the stars. And instead of doubting or wrangling over words, which most of us would have done, instead of doubting or scoffing, he believed that promise. And it says it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, here's an honest admission from me. When I saw this line while preparing for this, the first time I read it, I laughed out loud at my text. I, I, I laughed when I got to it. Uh, and some of you might, might know why already, but I'll, I'll explain it. It'll start to make more sense. So if you happen to be, if you knew me or if you knew some of the leadership team when we were first thinking about planting Capital City Church, there was a lot of different goals, a lot of different visions we had for what we wanted the church to be. And uh, there's you know, tons of things, but one of the things was that we realized that churches, in our persuasion, churches from our history and our background, tend to focus on some scripture, some books of the Bible, some teachings more than, other, more than others, and that's sometimes to the exclusion of some of the other riches that are in scripture. Now, this isn't, uh, this isn't a, a bad thing. Everyone has their favorites. Everyone has their stories, you know, whether Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, we all have kind of areas that we like to focus a little bit more on. It's a natural human thing to do. And if you grew up in an evangelical church, you might recognize that churches often, I think the average, they'll spend about 90% of their time preaching and teaching from the New Testament and only about 10% from the Old. So that was one thing that we looked at and thought, you know, it doesn't need to be 50-50, but we would like to even that out more. You know, maybe at least a 60-40 or 70-30. In this first year, we might actually be more Old Testament since we're doing all of these Old Testament stories. But we just realized this was a trend and we wanted to kind of push against that a bit. Also, we realized that within the uh, New Testament, when a Protestant church is preaching through the New Testament, they will almost exclusively lean toward the books that are written by Paul. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. It's just a, a preference. People like to preach and teach out of Paul. Even though he only wrote a quarter of the New Testament, we'll often spend a lot of our time there. And outside of that, people might spend some time in the Gospels, uh, but they'll mostly stay in Paul. And books like Hebrews or Revelation get very little time at all. And so we decided that for the first 12 months of our church plant, we would try to do a bit more of a fair spread between the New and the Old Testaments. And I, I also made a commitment not to camp out in the letters by Paul. We even thought, let's do narrative preaching, let's do storytelling preaching, and maybe, maybe give Paul a break since, you know, we've been trying him for the last 500 years and, you know, never giving him a rest. I'm just kidding. No, uh, no Paul is wonderful, but I thought that'd be interesting. If, if this is our tendency, why don't I push against that a bit and do other things? And so that's why getting to this verse made me laugh out loud. And maybe some of you will, will catch this, that, that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, because this is like a bolt of lightning straight out of Paul, right in Genesis 15. And it, uh, to be honest, it kind of humbled me. And uh, let's see if I can explain this. Um, in not wanting to preach from, from Paul too much and become unbalanced in our biblical diet, I started maybe making some of the errors that uh, secular scholars make when they look at the Bible. So there's a lot of things that aren't true out there, but in order to be well-balanced, you want to read from everyone. And, and a lot of times people who don't believe in the words of Scripture will make this critique. They'll say, and this is untrue, it's really bad history, but they'll say something like, 
Well, the idea of what it meant to be righteous before God in the Old Testament or in the mind of Jesus is really quite different than what Paul ended up saying. And they like to, this isn't true, but what they like to do is they pit Jesus against Paul. You might have heard someone talk about this before where they'll say, Jesus' idea is this and it's more similar to the Old Testament and Paul's idea is different and then there was this battle, there was this trouble in the early church and it's not good history and it's been proven wrong, but it just happens to be this idea that won't die. Um, and then others will say, well, no, it's not, it's not a Paul thing, it's just a Protestant reading of Paul is the trouble. And so I'm kind of getting into the geeky stuff here. But even though I know that that's wrong, sometimes that idea can still be swinging around in the back of your head or it can coat the way you think about other things. And so here I realized this had influenced me and I thought that if we weren't going to be in Paul for the first year, I didn't necessarily think that we were gonna be running into these justification by faith verses all over the place. And that's what made me laugh and get down on my knees because I realized that I had been influenced by this non-believing idea, this, this secular idea about this sort of debate between Paul and Jesus that, of course, didn't exist. Here this idea is, Paul didn't invent it. He didn't, he didn't theologize. He didn't, this wasn't a novelty. This, the idea that we are justified before God by faith and that God is the one that gives us righteousness is right in the beginning of the Bible. And Paul did not create it. He, didn't, he, he, he wasn't some sort of like philosophizer that was like, how can I reconcile these systems? It's, it's been biblical ever since the beginning. And Paul just explained it. He was a genius and he, he helped us to see. But it's been there all along. So God has made a way for us to be righteous before him. And people often will say right away, they'll say it's not through works. So think about this. God made a way for us to be righteous before him. It actually is through works, just not yours. It's through God's works on our behalf. It's through his working, through his promises, through his sacrifice and his reconciliation. Not only does your life and existence and thought and everything come from God, so does your ability to be seen as blameless and righteous before him, to have your record wiped clean, that when God would look upon you, he wouldn't see this fallen human being, but instead see the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you, to see the righteousness of his perfect son who was with him before all worlds, light of light, you know, very God of very God, begotten, not made, and as the old creed says, being of one substance with the Father. So this Jesus emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in human likeness, and he lived. People, sometimes people just go right to what he did at the cross. He lived a life. He healed. He taught. He spent his time with, who honestly, the dregs of society. He cared for the least of these. He cast out evil wherever he went. I often think of the kingdom of God sprouting up like the wake of a boat. You know when you're like going wakeboarding or something and there's just the, the wake that the boat produces? It's like wherever Jesus goes, there's just like blossoming of the kingdom of God behind him. And then he went to his Roman execution on the cross and above him sat this, this sign that said King of the Jews. And it was in Latin and it was in Greek and it was in either Hebrew or Aramaic. All the, known, the main known languages of the entire known world at the time. It says King of the Jews. And that he was. I find it odd that his executioners used the correct term. <laughs> and he was the offspring of Abraham, bringing blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And he took the punishment for evil. He took the punishment for sin. And he wasn't like just some like teenager or some kid with powers from heaven that was like sent down who, the, who God was going to punish for sin. Sometimes people, people use language like this. 
if, if ever someone says this, no, it's not true. Jesus was not an abused son. Some, sometimes people get held up on this. Jesus was not an abused son. So when people who've maybe left the church or someone like a Christopher Hitchens or, or, or someone who's been hurt by this in their past, when they hear this, it can become a very strong like five-word sentence, and they, they think, well, Jesus was abused by God. And that's not true. Whenever someone says that, it, sh- it just shows that they have not a clue of what the teaching of the Trinity is, what the doctrine, to use a fancy word, what the doctrine of the Trinity is. The Bible is really clear on this. Jesus was in the beginning with God. He is the Word of God, He was with God, and He is God. And before time even existed, the Trinity was there. And this kind of blows our minds, and we can't really understand it because our brains aren't built this way, and that's okay. But this is how it goes. <laughs> Jesus was with God in the beginning, before all worlds were created. And they made this plan together. Plan is kind of a weird word. I don't like it because it kind of makes it look like Jesus and God are like hunched over a desk, like, well, what are we going to do? But that's the best thing I can come up with. They somehow made this plan together. So Jesus, very God of very God, being one with the Father, brought this upon himself. It wasn't like God the Father and like Jesus the teenager and God's like, get out there, you know, we got to take care of this. It was that, it was his work too. It was Jesus's work. It was Jesus's justice. It was his own wrath that he himself was covering and that was his choice. He says, I lay my life down of my own accord. No one takes it from me. So this isn't God doing this to him. It's him working together with God to do this as a way to make justice. So and by his deeds, his work, we can be counted righteous. We can be as white as snow. So think of, think of just some of the awful things that you've done and that you've thought. He died for that. The things that you ought to have done, but didn't. I know there's things I ought to have done and didn't, but he died for that. And even more so, what we often don't think of because we're individualists and we just think about our own deeds or, or misdeeds. The awful things that have been done to you, that have been said to you or said about you. He died for that too. So that you can know that just as he forgives you, he extends that forgiveness to those who have wronged you, if only they will believe in the promises of God. And that way, with the grace of God, you can find it in your heart as well to forgive those who've wronged you because he's first forgiven us. God hasn't changed. He offers the same righteous relationship now that he did to Abraham. But now, instead of just to one person once, it's to all people who believe forever. If you look to him, if you believe in Jesus' death for your sins, if you believe in his resurrection from the dead, if you believe in his promises and his righteousness that he'll give to you, then you too will be counted righteous, just like Abraham was in this moment. Not because of your belief, as if your belief is some great work, but because of God's acting on your behalf, because of God's promises fulfilled for you. Even God's righteousness is something that he dishes out. You know, he, he credits it to other people, if only they'll believe. And Paul didn't invent a sliver of this. He just explained it. He just showed that this was there long before the law, long before anything else. You know, 500 or 600 years before Abraham's descendants were ever slaves who then had to escape Egypt, and then they had Moses, and then they go to the mountain and they get the law. But long before all of this happened, God was already counting Abraham as righteous because of his faith. 
and the promises of God. And Paul is picking up on this. The Jews of Paul's day were so fixed on the idea that it was the law, it was, it was obeying the law that made you just. But Paul is saying, no, 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 the law was just the agreement. God is, a, like God is choosing you and calling you his people, and he gave you the law as just, as just the agreement. Like, hey, this is our covenantal agreement. It's in a sense, the law would be like the marriage ceremony, but he's saying you were chosen long before that. That's not a great analogy necessarily, so don't parse that out, but, but I think you get what I'm saying. It wasn't the beginning. No, 500 years before, when Abraham was still a Gentile, when he was still uncircumcised, when he was not a Jew yet, God spoke to him, he shared his promise, Abraham believed, and then it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul is saying, hey, this, the law is just an interlude, it's just a middle point. And just like God said all the nations would be blessed by Abraham, by his, his descendant, that through faith he, he was made righteous, now we're there in Jesus. All nations of the earth can be made righteous now through faith in the promise of God. Not just the Jewish law, which came later and kind of after the fact anyway. Before there were even Jews, I don't know if you know this, Jews were actually, we often think of them as the descendants of Abraham. They're actually the descendants of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Uh, and then uh, Muslims actually claim descendant from Ishmael, which is just an interesting story. But before there were even Jews, uh, before yeah, circumcision, before any of the things that set the Jews apart, God had promised, Abraham believed, and he was counted holy, he was counted righteous, he was counted blameless before God in this moment. And this happened by, by any account while he was still a Gentile. There were no Jews yet, so there was no real Jewish-Gentile divide. It was just people. Abraham was just the father of this people. And, and God is saying a time is coming when this will hit the whole world, that the offspring of Abraham will be a blessing to all people of the world again, just like Abraham was just a regular person of the world anyway. And Paul, again, didn't invent this, not, not a drop of it. He just made it clearer to the people that were sort of seeing through a veil. This was God's plan since the beginning. If you believe in the promises of God, you get to be counted righteous before God. It's clear in Genesis, it's clear all the way through. It just becomes a little bit more clear in some of the letters of Paul. It's not, uh, it's not your works, it's not your belief that gets you there, but God's faithfulness, God's promises, and then God's plan. Your righteousness doesn't come from your success, things that we worry about so much in a meritocracy, right? Your righteousness doesn't come from your success, your worldly importance, your looks, your mind. It comes from God himself and what he did for us. And it's why the criminal or the poor, it's why the outcast or the sick are just as worthy in the eyes of God. It's why Jesus spent even more time with what you might call the, what his, 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 his comrades called the dregs of society, the outcasts of society. Jesus spent more time with them than those who were honorable in his society because your value comes from God. He made you in his image, and he has made a way for this image to be redeemed and reconciled. He's made a way for this image to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. But it's not your doing, it's the doing of God, it's the work of God. The righteousness of God always comes from God, and it's always been about believing him to complete his promises, even if those promises seem kind of silly, almost seem like folly to the world. I forget where in the New Testament it says that, right? That the, the promises of God are like folly to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe. 
And this is the gospel of Genesis. This is the good news of the Old Testament, and we see it start to break in in the very earliest chapters. It wasn't invented by Paul. It wasn't invented by the New Testament. This is how God operated a half a millennia and, and half a millennium, and well before that, uh, before the law. It's the gospel of Genesis. It's the gospel of the Old Testament, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ for all. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCityStPaul.com. Our music today, Slow Burn, was written and produced by Kevin McLeod under the Creative Commons 4.0 license.